there's a whole notion that sustainability needs to be at odds with financial viability. And I think you've got to work hard, you've got to be creative, but I totally reject that notion. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, it's episode 123. This week, we're talking about running a U.S. shoemaking business on heritage and sustainability. Our guest this week is Sarah Irvani, CEO of Okabashi. Now, for most of our U.S.-based audience, you probably know who Okabashi is, even if you don't know their name today. They make a ton of shoes for stores like Target, J. Crew, and many others. They've also been around for a while, and Sarah is a third-generation leader of this company. We're going to jump in pretty quickly today, so here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, we get some backstory. We'll hear about Sarah's grandfather immigrating to the U.S. and bringing his business along with him before we hear Sarah's part of the story and how they've been successful establishing and building the business in the state of Georgia. Next, we talk about sustainability and how that's gone hand-in-hand with their ability to innovate and stay competitive. Finally, we'll get some manufacturing and business tips from Sarah that go well beyond her niche of shoe manufacturing. As always, if you want to learn more, if you want to access anything we mention in this episode, you can do that at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 123. And if you want to take part in conversations like this with other manufacturing leaders, well, you should join over 600 of us in the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. That group lives on LinkedIn. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. Request to join, and if you shoot me a quick message on LinkedIn, I will let you right in. And with that, it's time to meet up with Sarah Hervani. Sarah, welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, and in happy hour style fashion, we like to hear stories as if we're having a drink with one another at a bar or a cafe, and and just looking at the history of you and your company, I think this is the perfect type of bar conversation, if you will. So to dive right in, you know, Okabashi is a third generation company with a long history. Can you tell us how the company originally started? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be part of the show. Um, So Okabashi itself was started in 1984 by my grandfather. And my grandfather had previously been the largest footwear manufacturer in the Middle East. And he was a different type of business leader. Wall Street Journal had an article on him on the front page in the 1970s saying, who is this businessman who pays women as much as men? So always really values oriented. And then everything got nationalized with the Iranian revolution, never political, but sometimes these things happen. And in the spirit of the American dream, I had to build everything from scratch and and came to the US. And we were established in Buford, Georgia in 1984. And uh, my father ran the business for many years. And now 
I've been running it for five years. So that's how we're here today. Yeah, quite the family legacy, quite the story. I'm I'm curious, you know, because obviously you weren't there for the whole story, but for some of you know, maybe the more recent history, how how did Atlanta, um, or I should say the greater Atlanta area in Georgia, become the U.S. location after making that move from the Middle East? So Buford, Georgia, actually got started in the late 1800s. And there was this amazing leather saddle factory, um, the Bona Allen Company. And they, out of the scraps from the leather, they would make shoes. So you're the Bona Allen Shoe Company. And you even had in like the 1930s, the baseball team were called the Shoemakers. And they would drive about in a car in the shape of a shoe. And so you have this sort of strong history of sustainable footwear manufacturing in Buford. Unfortunately, in 1981, um, they closed down their their operation. But there really is this tradition of footwear manufacturing um, that that sort of drew us to Buford. And Atlanta itself is such a strong logistics hub, whether you look at the airport, whether you look at the ports, And what's been so exciting is to see that while there was strong basis to come to Buford, Georgia, those reasons have only gotten stronger and stronger as time has gone by. And I think that Georgia is really proving itself to be a fantastic place to to manufacture and to ship and export from. Yeah, no no doubt the logistical aspects. I kind of had that in my mind, but I had no idea that if I hear your story right, footwear was actually an offshoot of saddle manufacturing in the area. They're like, well, hey, we have all this extra scrap. Let's make shoes out of it. Um, I have to ask then, have you learned anything about saddle manufacturing just by osmosis or by default of having learned that history? Well, there's a super cool museum in Buford, and you can go and you can see the old saddles, which are so nicely made. And then some of the old warehouses and factory spaces, unfortunately, they're no longer areas of production. But um, you can, like some of them are restaurants and the like, but you can still go into them. And so um, I wouldn't trust myself to make a saddle. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, advise anyone to get on the saddle that, that I had made, but I, I've got so much respect for the handicraft of it and the traditions. And I'm really proud of the team being able to continue these traditions of, um, of circularity, which we, in a weird way, mirror in our manufacturing process as well. So uh, another question I have is taking over that, you know, I understand there was a manufacturing infrastructure there, something like a hundred thousand square foot facility. Um, And you've expanded since you've moved in there, I believe you said in 1981, but you're still occupying that same space, if I remember right. Can you give us a little insight into how does a shoe manufacturing company expand when it sounds like you're still doing a lot of that manufacturing in the same footprint, no pun intended. <laughs> there are so many good footwear puns 
I think uh, <laughs> it'll be like a bingo. Can we hit them all? <laughs> um, the So our factory is indeed 100,000 square foot feet. And we're surrounded by this wonderful undeveloped land. And so we sort of have nature always at the top of our mind. And you can literally see it from the loading docks. It's sort of beautiful trees, which is so, so nice. In terms of the expansion, um, we've added a lot of really new next generation equipment and, um, and lines as well. And, and so, um, we've shifted our balance of warehouse space and production space. Makes sense. And and I've been asking you a lot about the history of the company in general and the region. I haven't asked you a lot of personal questions about your history within the company. And one thing that we, we've talked about family businesses on manufacturing happy hour before. And from what I've learned with generational businesses, I, I have to ask, was it always predestined that you were going to take over the company or were there other paths that you were pursuing? Can you give us a little insight there? I I always wanted to go into manufacturing. I think uh, childhood stories have a, a deeper impact than one ever realized. And I think hearing stories of manufacturing going up certainly shaped me. Um, I didn't have an expectation that I would be given the opportunity to to run Okabashi Brands. Um, and so I, I really worked in earlier in my career trying to round out my skill set. Um, I worked in strategy consulting, um, studied philosophy and finance, and then did an MBA as well. Um, then worked in venture capital, first in investment, then in operations and running businesses. And as well as learning, you know, a lot of analytical skills, communication skills and the like. I think on the culture side, I also learned a lot about what I don't want an organization that I am responsible for to run like, and what are the values and, and how does culture impact an organization? And I think that has been one of the biggest joys of joining Okabashi and being a part of an, an amazing culture. So I want to ask about something you've hinted at throughout this conversation. You've talked about how you've always been a value-based organization, even back to your grandfather. You've mentioned sustainability and the trees around the area as well. I'm, I'm curious. So you're passionate about sustainability in U.S. manufacturing. How do you put that into action when you're running an operation like yours? Maybe some tangible examples. So there, there are many ways that we can we can do that. For example, um, on on the material side, what type of materials are you making things from? We may, we source our materials from the U.S. Our, our core line is made of a material with, made of forty five percent soy by weight that's um, qualified by the uh, USDA. We figured if they can grade our meat they can grade our shoes <laughs> and uh, we also do closed loop manufacturing as well so we take all of the scraps that we have from our brand and um runners and yeah you know, even if you don't have scrap that's 10 percent of material weight and 
we're able to regrind them and reuse them. And we use fully recyclable materials for you know, up to 40% recycled content and on average really more around the 25%. Um, we support local vendors and vendors also using sustainable materials like recycled corrugated. Um, and then we offer, um, as well as our closed-loop manufacturing, a post-consumer circular program. So sh- people can send their shoes back to us um, to then be able to avoid landfills and the like. So uh, across the board, there's so many things that can be done. And I think in aggregate, they really move the needle. So if I hear that right, you're picking suppliers that support that. You have your closed loop manufacturing. Even after the closed loop, people can send their shoes back. So a lot of tangible examples there. One thing that stuck out at the start of the answer that I have to ask is, you said you use something like 45% soy in shoe mm-hmm. manufacturing. Is that is that common? Is I'm learning about shoe manufacturing as we're having this conversation. Is that common? Is that a relatively new development? T- give us a bit of behind the scenes on that. No, it's not common at all. I mean, um, most using bio content like we've been u- doing for years and years is only really in the past probably two years um, more of a topic for conversation for for sort of larger footwear brands and. I think, you know, it comes down to also why you're doing it. And and we've been doing what we're doing for many, many years. And we're always trying to improve on um, manufacturing processes and innovation and material. And we do it because um, we care as as owners and as Okabashi family. And, and that really means everyone in the company. Um, and some things, you know, it's been, we've been doing some things for five years and then we start to get customer acknowledgement and we start to share it. And, um, they've also made, uh, given integrity to our team and I think supported the culture. And many of these things also benefit the business model as well. And there's a whole notion that sustainability uh, needs to be at odds with uh, financial viability. And I think you've got to work hard, you've got to be creative, but I totally reject that notion. Uh, so so another question, this kind of feeds in maybe to what I'm about to ask is I have heard you have turned your factory into a laboratory in some senses. I think that I heard that months ago when I was first learning about your company uh, how do you turn a factory into a laboratory? Or is it just being able to experiment with new ways of doing things like what we're talking about with using soy as a material? Well, I think it's about, you know, questioning what does made in USA mean from the beginning, right? Like, are we just a factory? Or does it, is, there, is there a deeper purpose? Is there a deeper connection that we have? And I think the fact that we are unsure means that we can be a gathering place for um, customers, suppliers, scientists. And so we often bring together special combinations of people and, and experiment and also have fun with it. I think that uh, for those in manufacturing, we can all 
agree that it's, it's tough work, it's serious work, but there can also be really a lot of fun in it as well and a lot of cool inventions. And so that's what we try and drive at. Can you give me a specific example or tell me a bit more about that? Because I love that notion of, hey, manufacturing should be fun. You should try new things. Do you have a story that illustrates that? And if you need to speak in generalities, that's fine. But uh, it is one of those areas that I think the manufacturing leaders listening to this are always trying to find ways to make their companies more appealing, make them more fun. And I think you could provide some cool insight there. Yes, of course. So, I mean, going back to this material example, we've established our, our, our soy bio content, but recently we were trying a, a different type of bio content and sort of very, very cutting edge, shall we say. And the entire material exploded uh, in the machine. No, like, of course, no one was hurt and we've got all of our safety guards so but it, it just made an incredible mess and and that's okay and there's no one then that we say oh you know look what you did this is a bad thing etc you know we we laugh and we clean it up and we try the bio amount uh, the bio ingredient in a different amount and um so you know that's just in a way that we do it in terms of uh the the material itself, but it, it goes across all of the different inputs where we're okay to fail at things. What allows you to try new things and move quickly, maybe more so than offshore shoe manufacturers, et cetera? I'm curious, what, what gives you that ability? Is it being US-based? Is it being maybe smaller and more nimble? Is it the culture? Can you share a bit more about what allows you to take this approach, maybe when other companies aren't doing that? I think perhaps it's about empower. It's a good question. I think that it's about empowering the team as well and not just having a top-down approach to innovation. Um, and I think that in from many conversations that I've had with sourcing leaders, in many offshore factories, there is a fear-based culture and the idea of experimenting with something and failing um, and drawing slightly outside the lines has more of a, a, a risk to someone. And I think that innovation comes from all different directions and there are so many things that can drive it. And Having a culture that is not steeped in fear is a prerequisite to have innovation come from all directions. I love that. And and kind of back to doubling down more on U.S. manufacturing here. How, how does one run a shoe manufacturing business competitively in the U.S.? Maybe that was the obvious question I needed to ask at the beginning of the interview, but um I'll start there because I have a follow-up question to that. I think that you do it, um, you have to be focused on it. I mean, it is not easy. The factories that we compete with, the, um, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly tough. 
Um, but I think that you do it through leaning into innovation. Um, I think that you do it through sustainability. I think you do it through thinking through not just your supply chain end-to-end, but really getting a macro view of your customer supply chain. And I think, you know, all partnerships, whether they're corporate or personal, um, the more that you can empathize with the other party's challenges and address them, um, the stronger it will be. And I think that that's the approach that we've tried to take um, towards partnerships to ensure that we uh, build constructively and, and lean into our advantages as a U.S. manufacturer. Yeah, and we talk a lot about, let's say, in like capital investments, ERP systems, new things that allow people to stay innovative on this show. I'm curious, and, and you mentioned this a bit at the start, right? You've shifted some warehousing to production as you've expanded within that facility. I mean, what are the type of investments or strategies that you're leveraging to continue to increase production or get more insight into your supply chain, like you said? I think that some of the investments that we're doing um, are a lot into that material side, a lot into, you know, the customer relationship in terms of the, the ERPs. We are about to do, well, we'll probably be doing some changes in the next sure, sure. <laughs> uh, couple of years. So more more to come there. But I think that, you know, also modular automation is something that can really make a big difference as well. And just making sure that the automation is such that um, it can work with a whole host of different customers and setups. Interesting. T- tell us a bit more about that. Maybe define modular automation a bit more, because I think that's a big area that that people listening to this can learn from and that, hey, there are a lot of, you know, it's one thing to invent a new shoe and a new material. It's another thing to make it such that you can manufacture that with agility. Can you define modular automation and, and how that helps with, with shoe manufacturing? Sure. So I think the the uh, nature of our a lot of our footwear manufacturing in the actual production line slightly harder to automate. But where we have been able to focus is on the packard side. And so I mean, it's something as simple as box automation. There's so many different configurations, and and what are you using so that it could work in in one setup and then move and work in another setup as well. And I think that some of it is about the equipment and then the other one is about conversations with customers and making sure that they understand your complexity drivers um, just as you understand theirs. Well, I think that's a great point, right? You don't necessarily need to look at every single part of the process. You're talking about the end of the line packaging and the Mm -hmm. boxing at that point. And if that's the process that's easier to you know, leverage modular automation and switch around. I think that's a huge insight. As we're getting towards the end of the conversation, I have maybe more of a business-related question. It's a, This is as much of a leadership and business show as it is manufacturing. But while maybe the name Okabashi doesn't jump out 
to everyone right out of the gate. Surely people have seen Okabashi around before, right? You work with companies like Target and J. Crew, like you are in a lot of different spots. So my question is, you know, how do you end up working with large companies like that? When you're, hey, you're you're a you know more of a mid-sized U.S.-based shoe manufacturer. I th- I think it goes back to 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 what we were talking about before, which was um, empathy at its core. Um, understand the market. Understand um, what consumers are looking for, and then what you know partners like a a. A target or you know, J Crew, we were on their brand brands we love page. What they want to offer, and I think that thinking that through to white space in the market is the, is the key way. I think you know a lot of communication and persistence can can really pay off, but it only pays off when the basis of it is win win win. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good for your company. It's good for your partner, and it's good for their their customers as well. And I think not just thinking what would you like to do, but really having that empathy of what do they want to offer to their customer is a key to making sure that you you know focus what are invariably always limited resources. Um, on challenges and and conversations that can be converted. As uh, I've just got a couple more questions here, and and one of them is we've talked about a lot about the history of your company, how you're differentiating, how your manufacturing and business has evolved. What are you excited about when it comes to the future of Okabashi or the shoe market in general? I'm really excited about Circular. I mean, this is something that we've been doing since the 90s. And I remember five years ago when I started, I just got so many glazed eyes, you know, what is circularity and and the appreciation of it by, you know, everyone, you know, whether it's on supplier side, whether it's on partner and customer side, um, it's exciting. And I, I think that, um, you know, the, the world needs a change. And so it's excited, exciting that people are leaning into it and understanding practically how it can be achieved and the role of U.S. manufacturing in it. What Do you think it's something unique about just your character, yourself, your company, where it seems like you've been on the cutting edge of a lot of these trends before they were mainstream, right? You talk about being into circularity in the 90s, and I can say most companies weren't doing that. What do you think it is about... I don't know, your background, the company that that gives you that focus. I think that it, you know, gave the example of my grandfather and 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 leaning into gender parity in the 1970s. And I think that was a values-based decision, um, not because, not for marketing or for any reason. And the same with my father deciding not to offshore but to stay true to the commitment of U.S. manufacturing and lean into recyclable materials to help enable a lean organization. Um, and uh, some of the work that, that I've been doing also, you know, we've avoided a lot of water-using technologies, which are traditionally used in the footwear um, 
industry then just would not to do or be responsible for. And so I think that that is the privilege of, to some extent, a, a not being a publicly traded organization and, and being connected to the company and the work deeply to, to really operating as Okabashi family. And again, that doesn't, doesn't mean my family, but, but the whole organization and taking responsibility for what we're doing and wanting to do a better way. And I think, um, if you stick to your values and if you have a long enough horizon line, good things happen. Well, one thing that's been very clear in this interview that Okabashi has historically and has always been a value-based organization from everything you share, regardless of the topic. You talked about your grandfather and gender parity. Now you're talking about sustainability in U.S. manufacturing. So I love that common thread throughout uh, throughout the story. As we get to the end here, is there anything, Sarah, that you wish I would have asked you that I haven't yet? For me, the, the, the key point is, you know, just to stick to values and, and also lean into innovation and to experiment and, and try new things as well. And I think that that's where U.S. manufacturing will really win in the long term and continue to win. Yeah, well, whether it's experimenting with soy in shoes or other <laughs> materials, there are countless innovations the leaders out there can be using. Sarah, what's the best way to connect with you and Okabashi? The sugar, I think, probably is we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. Um, that probably is the, the best way. It's funny. I've been doing more of these interviews with like ski companies and now footwear companies. And this show used to live on LinkedIn in a lot of ways, right? Because that's where manufacturing professionals go. But as now we do more of these, let's say, B2C goods, there's a lot more Facebook and a lot more Instagram <laughs> coming up here. So, Sarah, I will have links for the listeners in the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com to follow those. So I just want to say thank you so much for jumping on today's show. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening. And thank you, Sarah, for jumping on today's show. Definitely a few things that surprised me from this episode, particularly how shoemaking in that part of Georgia evolved out of saddle manufacturing. And I'm sure that won't be the last, quote, manufacturing adjacency that takes me by surprise on this show. As I mentioned, if you want to learn more, head over to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash one, two, three. There you can also find links to Okabashi on Facebook, Instagram, and of course, their website. One last call to action. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can get to either of them by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes or manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Spotify. But hey, if you're listening to this show, you're probably already listening on one of those apps. On Apple Podcasts, please make sure to leave that review as well. It doesn't need to be more than a couple sentences in addition to hitting that five-star button. And hey, on Spotify, it's just as easy as hitting the five-star button. No option to, uh, to leave a review there. But hey, it helps boost the show. It helps get the ratings up. Help gets it on the radar of more manufacturing leaders. So again, please leave a rating and review if you're enjoying the show. And with that, stay innovative, stay thirsty, and we will catch you back here on Manufacturing Happy Hour next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. 
powered by the industrial network.